Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm excited to introduce today's episode. I am joined by Terence Hamilton, domestic policy specialist focusing on child rights, health equality, and social justice with UNICEF. And today we're going to be talking about the Innocenti Report Card 17, which covers the 43 countries that are members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD countries, as well as the European Union. UNICEF, or the United Nations Children's Fund, was established after World War II and works for child rights and well-being. UNICEF helps children through natural disasters and humanitarian crises and works to build global health and welfare systems that provide essential services, education, and safe environments for children and their families. It's a rad organization. I'm delighted that Terrence took the time to talk to me today. We had some technical difficulties at the beginning for the first couple of minutes. But that just means that I'm going to drop you in halfway through where we were talking about the UNICEF Halloween Drive, which is how I grew up understanding UNICEF as a cool organization. In Canada, I'm not sure what other countries would have done this, but every year for Halloween, your school would hand out these little boxes for UNICEF. And as you went trick-or-treating door-to-door, you know, asking strangers for candy, you would also ask strangers for loose change and you'd fill your little UNICEF box And then the school would supply that back to UNICEF as part of a fundraiser that supported, you know, it's kids supporting kids. I thought it was kind of cool. And I'm going to let Terrence tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, UNICEF is actually bringing the Halloween campaign back. Uh, I think last year was the first year. And so now you can go online to unicef.ca slash Halloween and young people can sign up to organize Walkathon, of course, it's like all digital fundraising now. Nobody has to carry around a box of loose change anymore, uh, but they're bringing it back. So let all the trick-or-treaters in your life know that they can they can sign up to be UNICEF Halloween heroes. I love that. I love that so much because like my experience with UNICEF is very limited, but I have such a positive view of the organization because I was like indoctrinated as a child to... <laughs> fun fundraise for this wonderful cause and i i feel like as i've grown older everything that i used to love when i was younger i've started to realize is like poisonous and terrible but unicef just continues to have this like beautiful glow to it so (laughs) that's great great to hear yeah we're hanging in there yeah there's something really beautiful about it uh and for me in particular that it's kids helping kids you know like young people fundraising for young people in other countries uh, and also in their own country is uh, is a really powerful image. And I'm glad that it's standing the test of time. Yeah, yeah. People over, over a certain age have very, very <laughs> positive views of UNICEF. So to talk about the main thing today, we brought you on to discuss the Innocenti Report Card 17, which is mm-hmm. a... A report card that covers 43 countries that are members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD countries, as well as the European Union. And the report focuses on how environmental factors affect children's well-being, how many of the world's richest countries, how are they faring in terms of providing a healthy environment for children to live, develop, and thrive, and what actions can these countries take to improve the environments in which children live, which is a really big report. It's, uh, I mean, it's not that big. It's not like, it's not like a 4,000 page report. It's like, I think people actually should read it. It's only like 80 pages. 
And I'm wondering, like, what was your involvement on this report? And and what is this report? And expl- explain yourself. Explain <laughs> <laughs> yourself. Yeah, so the, uh, it's, it all sounds very complicated, but it's not actually. The, the report card series is actually something that UNICEF runs every year through its Office of Research. And basically, it looks at aspects of child well-being across wealthy countries. So that's the easier way of saying, uh, you know, OECD and EU nations. So the wealthier countries of the world, usually around 40 to 43 of them are included in this analysis. And they kind of alternate between overall child well-being and then in the odd numbered years, looking at sort of topic specific aspects of child well-being. So that's how we've gotten to this report card 17, which is looking at specifically at the environment that children live in and how it affects their their well-being. So that's what this most recent report card is all about. And Canada, Canada didn't fare particularly well on it. But we I scored think terribly. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Canada should be ashamed. <laughs> Total, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's difficult for me because Canada hasn't been doing well in the report card series for a while now. So it's less surprising for those of us who are working with this type of data on a regular basis to hear that Canada ranks where we do. But yeah, I think a lot of a lot of everyday, like your average Canadian, when we tell them where we rank in these in these in these report cards, uh, they're often quite shocked. Yeah, and, and I think. I can see a few places that we're going to get to them, but there's a few spots where I think people would be like, oh, yeah, sure. But then a few places where they'd be like, what? We're the worst on that. And it's like, yeah, guys, we should do something. (laughs) So this is report card 17. Have, Have the report cards been coming out for 17 years? Yeah, it's been about 20 years. So they've skipped a few or stretched out the annual basis on a couple of them. But uh, yeah, 17 is is the most recent one. So I, I was just curious, um, who is the report aimed at specifically? Are you looking at policymakers or do you want, is this meant to inform the average Canadian or are you looking to kind of, if everyone in the world read it, that would be great? <laughs> totally. I mean, it's a little bit of both. And as you as you will see on our website, like we we sort of repackage the information in a, in a number of ways to reach different audiences. Of course, we're trying to reach decision makers because they are the ones who can change the policies that affect child well-being in this country. And so a lot of the a lot of the purpose of the report card is is like an advocacy tool to bring to decision makers and try to convince them to change laws and policies. But we also want to empower everyday people with knowledge and in particular young people, because uh, young people are very passionate about their own lives and the and the things that affect them. And they're often looking for, as I said, tools that they can use to get themselves involved in the conversation and uh, make themselves heard. So how have these reports changed over the years? And ha- has any have you seen any major accomplishments come from previous report cards? Yeah, so the 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 way that they've changed over the 20 years that they've been doing them. I would say the biggest change is the increased focus on young people's voices themselves. So both in terms of what the report cards look at. So the topic of the environment, for example, is a topic that young people told us at UNICEF that they wanted to see a comparative analysis on. The 
they it's an issue that's important to them and they want us to focus on it but also in the types of indicators that are included in the report cards there's an increased focus on uh, young people's self-reported levels of life satisfaction social networks etc and an acknowledgement that young people are are the experts in their own lives and that there's a lot of really interesting uh, lessons that can be learned from from listening to young people directly. Yeah, I think that's really awesome. And I think that you were talking about the way that you've packaged the report on the website. The illustrations on the website surrounding this report, uh, built into this report, are so beautiful. Um, I wrote down the illustrator's name, but I've misplaced it. But it, I encourage people to check out the website just to see the the animations that that are there. It just looks so totally. good. They actually are doing a little bit more. There's a there's a second wave of child and youth produced material associated with this report card that's going to be launched as a microsite microsite in September. So there's going to be an entire website where you can access like videos and illustrations and hear from young people in in their own words and paintings and videos on how they feel about the environment. Yeah, and I I really liked this report, not just because it's beautiful, because I like th things for substance, not just their beauty. Uh, and what this report card does well is the three things that it really focuses on, which are the world of the child, the world around the child, and the global world. And mm -hmm. the report looks at stuff like, do children have clean water to drink? Do they have good quality of air to breathe? Are their homes free of lead and mold? How many children live in overcrowded homes? How many have access to green play spaces safe from the road? I also really liked how punchy it, it is. <laughs> I felt like there was a little bit more attitude in this report than I'm used to reading in academic yeah. reports. And I'm wondering, have they always used this much decisive language? Or is this a recent development after just years of inactivity on part of like government and, uh, and officials in charge? <laughs> like neutral language no longer cuts it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's a little bit of that. I would also say that that experience that I was just talking about of working with young people and reflecting the language that they use with us back to them, I think is really important for them to, to see that they're being heard by, by UNICEF at least. And so I think part of the, the language that you're seeing there, that, that style of language is actually like a youth-friendly style of, of speaking and writing. And, part of, and, and a large part of that is because young people are involved in the research itself. On the other hand, what you were saying about the urgency, I think there's no more urgent issue than the environmental crisis and the climate crisis. And so I think there's a, an increasing willingness for organizations and report writers to, to not mince words about what's at stake here. And that's that's where some of that punchiness comes from as well. Yeah. And we, we've been seeing a little bit of that, like in the United Nations reporting on like uh, the climate crisis over the last year or two, which is... A, a breath of fresh air, because I think when you use neutral language, people don't understand exactly how urgent it is. And um, when we're in a crisis as bad as this one, it, it just doesn't cut it anymore. To You want to engage people, so you can't just grab them by the shoulders and scream in their faces. But, but I feel like children, especially, I, I certainly felt this way when I was younger um, and I didn't have any right to vote. They feel like they have no power and they're watching the world crumble around them and and I really like that you guys were able to reflect that in a professional way. <laughs> so to clarify for all of our listeners who hate children, this is a very anti-children podcast and yeah. don't understand why a report like this is necessary. I'd actually like to read a quote um, that I think sums up the purpose of this report so beautifully. 
Children are uniquely vulnerable to the risks of environmental degradation from the widespread and insidious impacts of pollution to localized extreme weather events, yet they have the least responsibility for it. The impacts can start in the prenatal period and continue throughout their lives and may include infections, asthma, heat stress, poor mental health, diminished academic performance, cancers, injury, and death. For children, the future is not just getting closer, their future is now. And I thought that was just a beautiful way to sum up this report. Did you write that? (laughs) I wish. I wish. You know what? I'll take credit for it. (laughs) I I, I can't, unfortunately. But I think I agree with you. It does a really good job of summing up what's at stake and what we're talking about in this particular report card. And it does that in uh, two ways. First of all, as we experience further environmental degradation, those of us who are 30, 40, 50, whatever, we're going to experience those effects for hopefully another 20, 30, 40 years. But somebody who's five or six years old, they have their entire lifespan ahead of them. So the effects of climate change, for example, are disproportionately felt based on the lifespan of somebody who's younger than somebody who is older. So they they do have more at stake in an existential sense. They also have more at stake in the sense that their bodies are developing. They're more vulnerable to environmental toxicants, for example. And so their right to healthy development is more adversely affected by environmental degradation than somebody who's already a fully grown adult. Yeah. And just to to move us into one of the big topics of the report, which was the world at large, I highlighted a quote from the report that I think is my favorite line in the entire report, which is, Canada is a rich country, but a poor global citizen. And I was wondering if you wanted to just discuss that quote um, a little bit with me. Like, what makes us such a poor global citizen? Well, the thing that stands out about Canada's poor performance in this and other report cards is that Canada has much more wealth and I use that term broadly to include resources, environmental and and economic, than many of the countries that that rank higher on in the report card rankings. So then the question is, you know, what are those countries doing differently that Canada is not? And in many cases in, in the child rights realm, we note that the countries that perform better in child well-being have better governance structures around children's rights. They take children's rights more seriously. They involve young people in the decisions that affect them. And as a result, they have better design services and get better outcomes for young people. It's not not necessarily rocket science, but that's that's sort of like what jumps out at, at me. In terms of like Canada's role as a global leader, you know, Canada has a reputation that Uh, precedes it in terms of human rights, children's rights, and even the environment that we haven't necessarily lived up to over the last couple of decades. And I think that's something that, similar to how poorly Canada does on on the report card, I think it's something that the average Canadian often misses. Like, I don't think that is surprising to the listeners of your podcast, for example, but I think the average Canadian on the street still thinks that Canada is, you know, a top peacekeeper and a top environmental citizen and a defender of human rights and children's rights. So I think we've been kind of riding the coattails of our reputation a little bit, and it's time to get back to rolling up our sleeves and doing the actual work. 
Yeah, and I think having the United States just next to us, people think, oh, well, we're not as bad as them, so we're fine. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, if the bar is really low, that doesn't mean you're doing well. And secondly, we actually ranked below the United States in quite a few things on this report card. So maybe we should look inside our own house before we start pointing fingers at someone else. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you you hit the nail on the head. And I think it's really interesting that Canada is ranking lower than the United States because that's relatively new. You know, in many of these rankings, you'll see Canada and the United States at or near the bottom. And it's just a, a matter of, of degree to see which one is below the other. But uh, yeah, the, the classic... Canadian excuse of uh, at least we're not as bad as the neighbors. <laughs> to uh, it doesn't really cut it anymore. In, in no, in fact, um, one of my favorite statistics that came up in this report card a couple of times was that it would Canada would need five Earths to sustain our current resource consumption. Where do you know where that number comes from, and why is ours so high? The statistic that looks at the number of Earths that would be required to sustain humanity if everybody was consuming at the same level as Canada, that there's a number of uh, calculators. If you Google ecological footprint calculator, you can you can find one you can do at a personal or, or regional level. But yeah, as you as you noted, Canada actually ranks the worst in that category. I mean. Luxembourg is below us, but I don't really count them because it's a it's a city state. <laughs> yeah, so, Canada would require 5.1 Earths to sustain its annual consumption, which earns it the worst worst ranking. For example, Canadians consume more fresh water than every other rich country except the United States, and the consumption is related, of course, to output as well because the consumption that consumption creates pollution. It creates plastic waste, it creates greenhouse gas emissions. And so not only are we taking more than our fair share, uh, we're also putting out more waste as a result than many uh, other countries of the world. And it's certainly something that needs further attention. Well, especially when it comes to the waste, uh, well, and pollution, and et cetera. This is what makes us such a poor global citizen, of course, is that we're exporting all of our garbage to countries where it's being built up into litter mountains and we're through the extraction of oil, especially we're poisoning the air <laughs> like, and our wildfires were so bad for the last couple of years that they, the smoke drifted across the planet to, to other, to other countries. And it's, it's like, we're, we're really making the lives of other children bad, bad you know? <laughs> exactly. And that's where the concept of comparing one country to another kind of falls apart when you look at something like the global environment because environmental degradation doesn't respect national borders, which are obviously socially constructed. And even though Canada is the worst consumer of resources at 5.1 Earths required, the average across wealthy countries in that table is three Earths. We only have one. So what? Uh, <laughs> last time I checked. Um, it's funny. It's funny though that I saw a headline that there's two Earth-like planets that have been discovered, and it's just—it always amuses me that this idea that we're somehow going to save ourselves by just ejecting out of this <laughs> one beautiful planet. That yeah, we yeah. Doing. We just like consume it like an apple and then leave the core to rot while we go find <laughs> another apple. It's like, no, guys, this is not. <laughs> it's like only thirty-three billion light years away. It's the closest <laughs> All of which to say, clearly there's work to be done across 
all of the wealthy countries in, covered in this report. And finishing first or last doesn't mean all that much if both first and last are consuming resources and accelerating climate change at an unsustainable rate. Yeah, and we're not going to be able to get into, uh, we don't have like the time to go into a deep dive on waste specifically, which the report does a wonderful job of. And again, I'll be linking to this and everybody should go at least skim it, <laughs> but like, a, like check out the waste section specifically because the research that's been done on this is is absolutely astounding. And um, Canada is not doing so great. And when Kristen and I have done episodes on electronic waste specifically, and so listeners can go back and listen to those episodes if they've forgotten or check out the report for more information on the electronic waste. But basically, like, y'all, we need to stop buying so many new electronics. It is it's a horrendous problem. The report has Canada at 20.2 kilograms per person per year of just electronic waste. Like 20 kilograms it, per person it, per year. Like 20 kilograms. Yeah. <laughs> That's like... 40 yeah. pounds for our American listeners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the old adage of like carrying your garbage around you with a year. I would love to see somebody like try and haul their like used laptops and cell phones and televisions around with them. Yeah. See how long, how long they put up with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely appalling. Uh, we're also not doing very well on pesticide pollution, which I think people would be surprised to learn. I think... People don't think about the farms that they get their food from, but our pesticide pollution is real bad. We rank real low for that, you guys. Um, and that's poison. So like, we're literally poisoning people. Yeah. So the thing that is really frustrating for me about pesticide exposure in this, in this report card is the number of countries at the top of the ranking that have completely eliminated or effectively eliminated high pesticide exposure areas in their country. So Canada comes in at 6.3% of children under the age of 18 living in an area with a high pesticide pollution risk. But there are 10 to 15 countries that are at 0% or 0.1%. In those countries, if you go and look at it, they just pass laws. They pass laws and regulations saying that if you are producing agriculture or, or horticulture in, in a region where people live, then you can't use pesticides that are harmful to human life. And they've, they've effectively eliminated. So it's, it's a perfect example of where the political will to change something and change something for children can go a long way. And there's examples of countries that have done it. And those countries still exist. They're still... <laughs> <laughs> they're, still feeding, they're still feeding people, they're still producing food, like Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, they are, they're still producing food and they have eliminated pesticide exposure at the same time. So it means it can be done and hopefully it's a call to Canadians to see it done here. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, just to move on from that, I, I, I have another number here that was very uniquely upsetting for me, which is that our spending on environmental protection in general, not just on like pesticides, um, but our environmental protection spending is 0.7% of GDP. And I, I'm just, mm -hmm. 
That number makes me want to cry. <laughs> it's so low. It's so low. We're not spending any money on environmental protection. And then in addition to that, Canada is a leader in providing environmental education. We rank second in the percentage of young people with environmental knowledge. 87% of young people have environmental knowledge, but they have very few opportunities to use that knowledge. So they know how badly the environment needs to be protected. And then they turn around and the government's not spending any money on it. So no wonder we have like a whole generation of climate doomers coming up, you know? Yeah. So there's two things there. For the first one, the, the percentage of GDP that Canada spends on, on environmental protection, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a misnomer because the environment is everything. It's every aspect of the economy. And so all the expenditure that Canada does affects the environment in some way, positive or negative. And so like part of the reason why organizations, including UNICEF, are, are releasing these reports that look at well-being as a framework for decision-making is to move away from that sort of financial model of percentage of GDP and these traditional measures of government spending and, and action, because those are the things that have gotten us into this mess in the first place. We need to more broadly conceive of what it is that we're trying to collectively do as a society and as the government that represents it. And part of that is moving away from like just calling things GDP and things like that. Yeah, so that's the real silver lining of this report card, in my opinion, is how much hope and passion there is among young people in Canada for a better future and their willingness to sort of put themselves out there and, and, and demand the changes that they want to see. Yeah, it's really interesting to see, you know, Canada ranks in the middle of the pack in a lot of the statistics in this report card, but this was one of the only areas where Canada was at the top in a good way. <laughs> and that's the amount of environmental knowledge that young people have. And we ranked second, we were only behind, I think, South Korea. What that shows you is like all of the things that we've talked about today about the, the different aspects of the environment that are affecting young people's lives. Uh, it's not going unnoticed by young people. And if you when you talk to them, which is a big part of my job with UNICEF, with talking to young people about what they care about, you hear that they're they're not planning to accept the status quo anymore and they have big plans to change things. So the future horizon is optimistic, despite all of the somewhat depressing statistics in this report card. Just a couple of interesting things that young people are doing. I know like the courts aren't the only way to, to make change, but I don't know if you guys have talked about this on your show before, but young people have launched a couple of interesting court challenges in Canada. One is a court challenge against the federal government for not taking action on climate change effectively claiming that the federal government is denying them their future right to, to a healthy life. And another interesting one is a group of young people, some of whom work with us uh, at UNICEF, who have launched a challenge against the, the age of majority in the Elections Act of 18. So they want to see that, that voting age lowered because they themselves are under the age of 18. And they feel like their future is being decided when we do or do not act on issues like climate change. And they're kind of left on the outside without any power to influence that conversation. And they want in. 
And so they're taking the federal government to court and they're saying the low voting age should be lowered. And um, I hope they're successful. I love that. And I wish that I was their lawyer. <laughs> I hope that I hope. Yeah, I hope their legal representation is having a ball with this one, because it feels like an easy case to win, you know, and you just need to do like some gr- like just to go in there and be like slam the book down on the government and be like, hey, <laughs> I'm here representing yeah. the children. <laughs> That's right. You can't handle the truth. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure it's I'm sure it's just like on TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Have you been watching the uh, the American January 6th hearings? They've been televised them like like people getting popcorn and sitting down to watch them every night. I haven't been <laughs> keeping up, but I feel like it's a TV show I'm missing out on. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that when this uh, voting age challenge goes to court. I'll pop some popcorn. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, I would like to first say thank you for so gently correcting me on the GDP and the climate doomers comments. I love I love how diplomatic that was. You're like, no, Kyla, you're wrong. GDP is a terrible way to measure things. And also our children are so hopeful. Get out of here. And I am. I mean, we put it in the report. I I mean, I don't think you guys put climate doomers in the report. That was me. uh, (laughs) That was me extrapolating. But I I like to be wrong on stuff like that. I'm delighted to hear that there are so many young people that are working with UNICEF and working outside of UNICEF that are that are trying to do something because I feel like a lot of people are frozen by inaction. They don't know what to do. And it's just it's so good to see young people deciding to do anything like just do something just do anything we all need to be doing that so yeah thanks for that of course and for the for people who people who are listening to your podcast and especially people who are in positions of relative power I really encourage you to just go out and talk to young people directly you know like that could even extend to you guys like if you if you have opportunities to have young voices on your podcast Every time I talk to young people about issues that they're passionate about, I'm always blown away and couldn't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I'm thinking about maybe reaching out to the, as soon as you were talking about it, the students taking the government to court, I was like, I should send those guys an email. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But then, okay, so this actually brings me really nicely into the five key recommendations from the report, which are basically the takeaways that the report all, it all boils down to what can we do to make the world better? for our children. And I'll just quickly read all five of them. And then we can talk about what you think um, is the most important ones or what you think is valuable about these takeaways. So the first one is to focus on children now to protect the future. The second one is improve environments for the most vulnerable children. We need to read this one. We didn't talk about too much, but the inequalities, especially within Canada, especially when it comes to water, like access to clean water, um, especially along racial lines. Indigenous communities are way more likely to be water insecure. And Canada ranked near the bottom for water, which is wild because we are also the largest consumer of fresh water. So the fact that we're also we have some of the most people without access is it's appalling. It's it's appalling. But anyways, (laughs) uh, the third thing (laughs) is to ensure that the environmental policies are child sensitive. So as you say, Terrence, we should be speaking to children when we're coming up with policies that will affect them in their futures. Mm-hmm. The fourth is to involve the children, the main stakeholders of the future. Oh, I guess the third and the fourth just kind of go together. Look at that. It's like someone wrote this. <laughs> and then the fifth is to take global responsibility now and for the future. So what what do you think are are, are the takeaways that people should 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 go 
go with on these? The number one recommendation that is implicit, it isn't actually included in that list, is like stop degrading the environment and stop, (laughs) (laughs) you know, drastically reduce climate emissions, et cetera, et cetera. Like I think I think that sort of stuff goes without saying. And we we have had a couple of people be like, why didn't you include targets for greenhouse gas reductions in your report? And it's like, well, I think that sort of stuff is best left to the climate science experts. That's not UNICEF's role necessarily. So our recommendations are specifically aimed around, take it takes environmental justice for granted, but then it's like, how do you extend environmental justice to make sure that children are properly included and future generations are properly included? So that's where those recommendations come from. I think there's some really great stuff in there. Uh, I think, again, the value of this uh, report card looking at other countries is that you can look to see what other countries are doing to involve young people in the decision-making process and the positive results that come from it. Young people are often derided as being ideal, idealistic and uh, unreasonable, but when it comes to something as existential and severe as the climate crisis, like that's the type of attitude we need. We need people who are going to be uncompromising in wanting a better future because their lives literally depend on it and young people aren't afraid to do that they're not afraid to to go out and and say the things that they really mean and uh, I think it can be a really powerful tool for change yeah absolutely um, and I know you you said that you guys didn't go into too many of the policies on how to actually save the environment and th- to to reiterate this in, this report was very extensive and it didn't focus just on the environment it, it focused specifically on the well-being of children and because the environment <laughs> because climate change is affecting us now and will only get worse in the future it was a folk it was a focus of the report but it wasn't the whole report but I did think a solution mentioned that was really good was the polluter pays mentality that those who create the pollution should be responsible for its mitigation or elimination. And I don't understand why we're not there yet, but that's something people should keep in mind. Polluter pays. <laughs> Canada doesn't want to think about that because we are one of the worst polluters. And so. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's, you know, it's it's about accountability across generations. And it's something that Canada has been reckoning with in a number of areas, you know, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, et cetera. And how are we accountable to past and future generations is something that I think uh, our government should be thinking long and hard about. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really good place to to say goodbye to you. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on what listeners can do to to help the cause other than read this report, which I think you everyone should do. Skim it. There's a four-page summary you can read. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, like I said, the four-page summary is perfect. Definitely check it out on our website. There's a couple of things that are happening. I mentioned the the court cases that are that are happening around the right to a healthy environment and the right to vote. Follow those cases, amplify those young people. There's also discussion about the right to a healthy environment, both at the national level here in Canada and at the United Nations level uh, that's happening actually in the next couple of weeks. And so there's lots of ways to support that, even just on social media and things like that. But above all else, my recommendation is to 
after you read the four page summary, uh, go and talk to some, some young people in your lives about these topics and see what they have to say. Because like I said, always surprising, always illuminating, and you might find some call to action there. Oh, I love it. We're going to include links to all of those in our show notes and on our website so people can find them there. People can find Kristen and I on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. Are you on Twitter? Do you want people to chase you there? Yeah, totally. I'm on Twitter at Hamilton, H-A-M-I-L-T-E-R-E. That's fun to say. Um, <laughs> all, all, all the good handles were taken by the time I got on there. I was a link. <laughs> love it so people can follow you there and uh, thank you again for joining us I really enjoyed it we had some technical difficulties that the listeners won't have heard but your uh, (laughs) your patience and humor was uh, very welcome so thank you again my pleasure